Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit FightRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Hey everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Margaret Harrell, and we'll be talking about her book series, Keep This Quiet. Um, we're talking in particular about Keep This Quiet too. More Adventures with Hunter S. Thompson. Um, in her brutally compassionate, explicitly honest second autobiography, Keep This Quiet too. Margaret manages to repeatedly pull the rug out from under the reader. She travels from North Carolina to New York City to Morocco to Belgium to India to Switzerland to Owl Farm and many other places in search of herself. From depth psychology to dream analysis to hangoutologies to ecstatic lovemaking, to out-of-body astral travels, to spirit guides, adventures and misadventures, she is guided and guides herself ever homeward to her own heart and soul. For more information, you can visit her website, which is margaretherald.com, and that's margaret, H-A-R-R-E-L-L.com. And with that, I'd like to welcome Margaret to the show. Good day, Margaret. Hello, and thank you so much. It is my pleasure. You, there are so many facets <laughs> to the gems that you are. I'm really looking forward to kind of exploring and, you know, going a little bit beyond uh, Hunter S. Thompson, which is in and of itself, you know, very interesting. But, um, boy, I want to go ahead and start. Um, first of all, um, can, you know, this particular book is, uh, addresses Hunter S. Thompson, Milton Klonsky, and Jan Mensert. Um, so can you uh, give uh, the listeners um, a little idea about who these men were? Of course. Uh, they deserve it. So I was born with a great curiosity and artistic sense and drive, and I was born in a small town in North Carolina where basically I was almost a blank slate. I had, there was no culture to give me or background. So when I went to New York, I was hungry for all of that. And these were three remarkable men, each of whom in his own way could give me a large dose of culture, um, passion, information, uh, confidence, self-confidence. So Milton was Milton Klonsky. He lived in Greenwich Village, and he was well-known there. Um, Marion Maggot, who published Commentary Magazine at the time, managing editor, she told me when later I asked her could I write an article about him for them, she said, begin it, there was a time when New York was known for its talkers. Milton Klonsky was one of them. I say that because he could, he was so wise, so smart, but so digested in his wisdom that he could put it into um, a one-liner and, and you could ponder on it for a day or two, but it was a poetic one-liner. He was a poet, 
what you would call today a guru, and he was someone of the streets who could talk baseball or anything like that. That was Milton. Then there was Hunter, of course, who invented gonzo journalism and was um, someone who a lot of people, he had two, two sides that people picked up on. One was a public side where he often performed for the public, and it was called the Hunter figure later in life. And the other side was his private self, which was absolutely real, authentic, and powerfully loaded with energy. And then the third person was Jan Mensart, whom I married. He was a Belgian poet, but he was truly, he, he was just indefinable because he had no fear. He was not afraid of death, which meant he plunged into situations. He was not afraid for people to talk about him. And so all of these three men had this, had this quality of fearlessness that I didn't have. And I, I was, I needed to learn it and I really wanted to learn it. So that's the story. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and the, the story, first of all, the, I love the, you know, um, you know, insight, you know, and experiences that you share. And now, in them, I mean, you you kind of lay it out there, you know, you know, for for everyone to to read. Did you have any kind of reservation at all in in? Oh yeah. Maybe. Oh, okay. What 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 yes, would that have been? Mm-hmm. Well, um, two two things. One, when I was beginning to write, I had this marvelous friend called Virginia Williams, and I would. Um, when I was writing Keep This Quiet. And I would send her some pages, and she would say, no, Margaret, you cannot omit that. <laughs> she would just flat out tell me, it's not the deal you make with your readers. And so I would I would almost like forget it was about me, and I would think of, okay, the novelist, mm-hmm. how would the novelist say this? And so also when another phrase, a phrase by Milton Klonsky, just in general in New York, he was saying to me, he would always say, looking you in the eye with this penetrating look, he, he said, denude yourself, D-E-N-U-D-E, denude yourself. I can dream as well as anyone. So he met, remove all your clothes, <laughs> and he said, I can dream as well as anyone. And, and he meant that you have your story. I don't know your story. Nobody does. Denude yourself. Tell us what it is. So I, I, and, and it kept coming at me. I was in Morocco, and there was this marvelous, very decorated poet, uh, an older man, Mircea Ibanescu, and there was a, a sentence. I thought, gee, I don't think I can put this in this book. I showed it to him, and he said, well, I don't know if you can say that, but the book needs that said. And so in, in every case, it's, it's not about me anymore at that point. It's about the book itself is about creativity. It's about the creative spirit, and you just follow it. Well, it does. I mean, you know, it reads as a novel, you know, but you know, obviously, it's um, autobiographical um, in nature. So that you know, that was really accomplished as far as the novel aspect. Um, one of the there was in the book. There was one point that. Um, the hunter had told you later in your relationship that you know you talk the craziest of anyone I know, but you were you were talking about 
crazy wisdom teachers. And I, I found that interesting, you know, as far as um, a, a, a concept or even um, as a um, a way of viewing mentors or teachers. Can you tell us a little bit about that idea of a crazy wisdom teacher? Yes. Um, so it's really two different things, Hunter and the concept. I hope I can remember that I'm talking about those because I first heard, yeah, I first heard of crazy wisdom teachers from a friend of mine, really a very evolved person, um, in Switzerland. And she was a follower, among many other things, of Swami Muktananda. And she told me there's a book called Crazy Wisdom. And I read it. And it was talking, and then she told me about tyrant teachers. And so um, it was just the concept that teachers may be there to make you have terrible experiences. And they're teaching you, for, for instance, being married to Jan, he was using me as a crutch in a way because he wanted me to be the same uh, tradition-oriented person and that can be the wild creative spirit, which was the opposite of what I had in mind. I couldn't have been more shocked when I married and found out his plan. And so he, so he, in the fact that he made me rebel against that, was a crazy wisdom teacher in a way. He was bringing me... Mm experiences I could either accept, mushy and melt onto the ground, or I could develop, um, I, I could discover myself and stand up for me, which is what I eventually did. So that would be a crazy wisdom teacher. But in Hunter's case, I was telling him some of my early, I thought, well, who can I talk to about these early spiritual initiations? Believe it or mm -hmm. not, I thought of him. Because he was so open-minded, I thought, well, if there's anybody who'll be open-minded and listen to what I say and not reject me, it'll be Hunter. So I was talking to him and, you know, venturing to say just a few things about my experiences, meditation, visions, things like that. And he said, Margaret, you told the craziest of anyone I know. And I said, you know, I was taken aback. I said, but Hunter, I'm not crazier than you, which I knew on his face had to be true. And he said, no, you're not, but you talk crazier. And that's when he said that in, in presenting himself, he had to create an alter ego, and actually more than one. And he used the alter ego to have experiences and say things that sort of protected and shielded him as a journalist so that, you know, he would have a certain reputation he could uphold. And you wouldn't know which was really coming from him and which was coming from the alter ego. So it's, it's kind of two different things, but they do relate. Because in a way, yeah. so he was inventing the crazy figure, which was in part him, but not at all entirely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he had a, gosh, a, a very, um, a very interesting life um, as well. Now, um, speaking of crazy, I would I, – when I was reading through um, about um, your pending marriage with Jan and visit to his parents, I would have thought that maybe his mother might have been a foreboding of things to come because she seemed like, you know, um, uh, um, I don't know. I don't know. How, how would you describe, I mean, you know, her 
don't know. She was uh she seemed to be quite an interesting woman who maybe translated into Jan's beliefs. Well, to me she was like core <laughs> it's hard to say. She was very very different. She was totally different for me. She wasn't like aesthetic. His father was aesthetic. His father was dreamy and cultivated. His mother was she came from what you call in Belgium I don't want to be judgmental, but her background was mm-hmm. like the peasant class. The peasant class, mm-hmm. meaning um, growing up in a very rough environment, rough sort of um, fighting your way out <laughs> way. And mm-hmm. she carried that with her, this sort of fight. fight. She, she didn't have like a lot of femininity, to put it that way. And I, I, I treasured my femininity, though. I, I mean, I, I, I like to get things kind of like through my femininity rather than discarding it. And she was like, you know, more masculine. And, and basically mm-hmm. speaking, she was more like the man and her husband more like the woman in the sense that he was very genteel and cultivated and he read books and he was, um, you know, he loved art and all this stuff. And she was like the the masculine person in the, in the two. Yeah, yeah. Ayan was kind of caught in between. <laughs> okay. Now, did he, well, I mean, he, he must have then kind of incorporated a, a little bit of both, uh, both of them. Um, he, he, was, yeah. he, he was more the, the total artist from his toes to his head and on up into the beyond. He was every, that's what attracted me. There were, he was just like, he threw himself down into the earth like out of pure spirit. And then all he did was create. When he spoke a sentence, he was creating. He, he didn't have, he wasn't like grounded. He didn't have a sense of reality where if I do this, that will happen to me, so I better not do it. No. He, he, no matter what the consequences, he might do it. And I was attracted yeah. to that because I was so fearful. You know, I I, yeah. I was afraid of consequences, and I and I grew out of it. But when I was very young, I was I was like I was like fearful to take one single step <laughs> because something might yeah. happen to me. You know, well he, he, well to yeah. see someone who was the opposite, and on top of that, he um, he was like I was like Desdemona to a fellow, in the sense that it was a totally different world and culture, Europe and Morocco, and here I'm coming from a small town, um, and the fact that not, not only was it Europe and then Morocco, but it was a man who was totally steeped in the whole history of civilization there. He loved every aspect of art. He wrote poems about the bombs falling on Dresden. I didn't even know the bombs fell on Dresden, but everybody should. But to him, that was a major event in his heart, the bombs falling on Dresden. Um, that they were tearing down centuries of civilization. We didn't even have mm-hmm. centuries of, book, of buildings in the U.S. So it was all right. so marvelously eye-opening to me. No, he was every inch, every raindrop <laughs> that touched him, it was art. And that, that was, yeah. you know, amazing to me. Yeah, that's, that's very attractive, I would say. Now, when you recounted your time in Morocco, it seemed like that was a, a challenging time. So what, what was, what was, what did you kind of take away from your 
living experience there in Morocco? Well, one thing I took away was I, began, I was beginning to get this trust in life and the trust in life, you know, what you call the universal. And I began mm-hmm. to get this sort of sense, synchronicity and all, I began to get this sense that I had to stay there till I worked through some kind of spiritual growth. And, for, for instance, I arrived there and I thought the women who were sitting there on the floor um, making elaborate pastries um, while their husbands went off to some kind of work. And, and for all I knew, they knew or they knew were unfaithful. But they were like sitting on the floor all day. I was thinking, how could you sit on the floor all day and make elaborate pastries and this is your life? And, and, and the war, and the reward is that your, your children love you, your children adore you, not, maybe not so much your husband. Well, I began to understand slowly the, the, that patience is a fantastic, marvelous quality. So anyway, I began to, and I began to understand, um, they say Morocco is a thinking man's country. So it's because of all the nature. And you walk out and there's nature everywhere. There was no, no stress, no pressure. You didn't have to, because there was no sense of time. You didn't have to think, gee, if I don't get to work by 9 a.m., everything horrible is going to happen, then I'll punch the clock. No. You walk down a dusty street with uh, birds singing and, and um, clouds, huge clouds in the eye. Maybe you've got mountains in the background. And it's all, the relaxation, the the whole approach is different. So I finally realized I had to learn, I had to learn to appreciate what that life was offering. And I, I also had to get to a certain point in my own writing, which was, and uh, actually two things. I had chosen Milton Klonsky. I used his words for my main character because they were so perfectly pre-written. I didn't even have to think of of, of dialogue. I just picked him mm-hmm. out. I could never have done better. Well, he died. I, I didn't know it, but as things happen in the universe, he had to die before the book could end. And when he died, I would have a chance. He was still still teaching me. And if he was, he was going to show me how the book I invented as a novel was actually intuition. And I would become a nonfiction writer. And I would be um, suddenly um, initiated into spiritual experiences at the Carl Jung Institute, where I went after leaving my husband, Jan. And the third thing I had to learn was that and, and you, you can take a lifetime to learn these things. So I had to learn all of them before I went on to the next step. The third thing was that, so my husband was trying to blackmail me that he would die and commit suicide if I left. I had to learn that it wasn't my job to keep him alive. I thought that you can't just walk away from a situation like that. But I learned that I was preventing him from developing his own strength if I let him rely on me. He had a soul. He had inner strength. Using me was making a codependent relationship that wasn't necessary. So for learning all those things, I could jump a few notches in consciousness, and I could go on to hear it to the Jung Institute and be ready for the next step. Yeah, wow. Um, you know, that 
um, idea of the blackmail, the suicide aspect. It seemed, you know, after reading, you know, several of Hunter's letters um, and then hearing about Jan, that there there's a lot of um, sadness, um, um, depression. Um, so, is this yeah. was was that was that an aspect that that kind of um, was ever present in, in these men's lives? Now, which separate who has the sadness well, and depression? Well, 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 I, you know, I, I read. I mean, first of all, you know about Jan and and uh, you know the idea of you know blackmailing you, threatening suicide as, as a way of trying to control you. Um, Melancholy. Right. He used the word melancholy uh, as what he had uh, as like a, a state that you just go on in. So he had melancholia, he said. And that other musicians okay. had had it because he was also a musician. Okay. So that that was his term. Did did for you did it um would it appear as sad? I mean, did did you feel that, you know, it was melancholy versus, you know, you know, sad, sadness, and you know, I'm, I'm, I was trying, I'm trying to see if, you know, the, the, the authors. It seems that there was this challenge of, um, you know, sadness or melancholy that ran, um, that, that seemed to be. Uh, present in, in their lives. Uh, no, I mean we we all experience sadness, you know. But but like when we when I was reading through some of Hunter's letters, you know, when when he was talking about, you know, about how everything was falling down around him, and, and you know, how, you know, wanting needing to write a book and not wanting to write a book, and you know, and I mean it, it just seemed that there was this inner struggle. That, that he seemed to have that that I don't know if it well, my question is is it you think that it maybe contributed to you know being a um, an effective yeah. writer or um, what what would yeah. be your view of that um, so this is I'm so glad you asked because I don't know if I can explain how I perceive it. But it's living life with intensity. So all three of them have mm -hmm. high energy. And high energy goes with high vibration, but it's very hard to stay on it. And so when you have that high energy, high intensity, you're, you are, you're experiencing a range of emotions. And you are taking risks, whether you even want to or not, because the energy is strong, that strong, it wants to do things, it wants to be moving around. And, and sometimes it's hard to even keep up with the energy itself. And so it's not like a single emotion of sadness. It's part of a richness of a whole, of a whole range of emotions. And so it's, but beyond that is the intensity, and the intensity can be mercurial. It can be very sad one moment, and the next moment it can be laughing in that, um, because the, there's that much energy, it can reach the tipping point and go up or down. So 
I, I don't think I would have stayed with anybody even then. Now I definitely wouldn't. Who, <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, but it, I can't speak for me then, but I think I can. Who's, I wouldn't have stayed with anyone whose predominant emotion was that they were defeated, that it was all gloomy, oh, okay. um, that they were sad and that's it. Um, it was the contradictions, you know, um, the mixture of all these various intense emotions that didn't stand still. Once I, once I went after, I went back to see Hunter at Al Farm, and it was 1990, and I just started spiritual uh, courses and knew how to put my hand in auras and read the aura. I said, Hunter, can I read your aura? Can I feel it? And he said, yes. And see, that was the thing. He didn't, he wasn't hiding ever. Um, yes, you can do that. So I started feeling his aura, and I never felt energy that was popping and moving and jumping to such an intensity. And I thought, my goodness, mm. no wonder, no wonder he's, uh, he's, um, He's, you know, the way he is, going to extremes and all. That energy is so volatile. How can anyone stand in such energy? So, so my impression wasn't to stop it and stop it and say, now this is sadness because there was intensity that that kept moving and was and was um, going toward non-sadness, if you know what I mean. And the reason I left John was I thought. It was stuck that he didn't want to change truly, and that I, mm-hmm. it was a codependent, eternal situation. And therefore, no, I couldn't stay in there. I had to be strong enough to to realize I, I would be saving myself. Or Milton Clarke said, "Here's one thing he said. He was very direct and wise." So I I would tell him, I would go once a year back to New York City from Morocco, passing through through a month in North Carolina to write and stay with my parents. And I told Milton the latest, (laughs) what had happened the previous (laughs) 11 months. And that it was, you know, he was the wise one, and I was the one in this, 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 um, comic card, he said it was a comic strip, you know. And and he said to Mm -hmm. me, Give him something to rise to, or then go go down with him. But don't let this. But don't be a bystander while this man commits suicide. So he so he had seen a girlfriend who committed suicide, an artist, a singer. So he said, "Give him something to rise to. That should be my role. Give him something to lift himself up, or go down with him and commit suicide." Don't be a bystander, excuse me, go down with him. Don't be a bystander while this man commits suicide. Well, obviously, I could never think, I, it put it in such light. I, I, I couldn't be a bystander and let him go, go along and, and, and go down. I had to either give him something to rise to or decide it was impossible, at least on my part, and I shouldn't be there at all. Maybe somebody else could do it. Wow, that's that's um, I mean that that, is, that definitely gives one pause, you know. I would think, you know, to I mean, yeah, and I, I can understand the idea of you know giving them something to rise to, but did did you did you feel um, 
any um, pressure or responsibility, the idea of, you know, the need to provide something to rise to. I did for a long time. That's, that's it. For a long time, I thought it was my responsibility. Okay. I thought if you're with someone and they threaten suicide, um, right. it's up to you to prevent it. It's up to you. Mm-hmm. Your your job. But I, I right. finally, in my consciousness, said that is an inaccurate expression of why we're alive. It's it's not up to me because that's codependent. And it's manipulative because he has a soul just like me. And if I can get myself out of situations, he can get himself out. If he tries, if he looks inside and finds Mm -hmm. the strength, that is his karma and his job. And so when I left, I I asked a very well-known psychic, he was considered the successor to Edward Casey. I, I asked him about this, and he said, um, you were not supposed to hold him up. You were, that was preventing him from finding his own strength. So he was concurring that I had properly, and he said, you, you broke a karmic bond in leaving. In other words, I, the lesson I didn't get, I got. It was a consciousness moment of illumination that I had to leave. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that is, that's, um, an important lesson for for people who are um, connected to those who commit commit suicide. You know, quite often, you know, one of the uh, first responses is, you know, why didn't I see this, or what could I have done? You know, I mean, it's there's there's a big questioning about one's ability to affect you know, the person differently so that they wouldn't travel that route. But but in essence, it, you know, like you say, it is their route, their journey, you know, and that the, the idea of being tied to that outcome isn't um, – it, it's, like you say, it's a codependent, but, but what it does is it, it kind of keeps – it binds one together rather than set one free. Right. Now, other in other situations could be different. This one, Ron, mm-hmm. he was a, an artist. He played at it. He played at everything, including suicide. He played at it. Mm-hmm. And it, part of the play was to um, keep me terrified. Yeah. My mother yeah. had a dream. My mother had a dream. She dreamed that she was driving a car with me in it to get me away from Jan because she was also terrified that he was holding this uh, threat of suicide over me or whatever else. He was playing, mm-hmm. and that was part of what attracted me in the beginning. He didn't take life so seriously. He didn't take himself so seriously. He could sort of like be half out of his body. You know, kind of like directing his body what to do. It was, it was something I had never seen before or since. Actually, it was just art. Uh-huh. His, his whole life was art. But in but yeah. in tying me down like that, I was um, not seeing correctly. I don't say it would be always true in all situations like that. Right. It could be different in another situation. 
But in my situation, this was a lesson. He's yeah, playing yeah, very much so. Yeah. Isn't it a good thing that you made changes so that that play ended? You know, that, that scene uh, was a closed chapter. So um, we are just past halfway through the, the show, Margaret, so I'm going to take just a quick break. And then when we come back, I want to kind of delve into a little bit more about your, um, when you left Morocco and you went to the C.G. Young Institute in Zurich and, and talk about that experience, okay? Thank you. Yes. Okay, great. Okay, everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, byteradio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone. Thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Margaret Harrell, and we're talking about her auto biographical series, Keep This Quiet, and in particular, Keep This Quiet Too, which is the second in the series of four, um, The Adventures of with Hunter S. Thompson, Milton Klonsky, and Jan Vincent. Um, you can find out more about Margaret by visiting her website, which is margaretherrell.com, and that's margaret, H-A-R-R-E-L-L.com. Hey, everyone, we're back with my special guest, Margaret Harrell. So, Margaret, um, we, we talk a lot about Hunter, um, Milton, and Jan um, during the first half of the show, so I want to talk about you, <laughs> a little bit more about you oh. in, the, in the variety of life experiences that you had. Now, now you did mention that after leaving Jan in Morocco that you went to the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich. So tell, tell us about, you know, kind of how that came about and what was your experience there? What was it that you were seeking? Um, it was honestly very logical according to how life can lead you. That Jung always said, let the unconscious lead you. And without any, without knowing what I was doing, I did let the unconscious lead me. So I, one time when I went home for a month from um, Morocco, I would go to the library each time, and I would come back with with English books, because in Morocco I couldn't find them. And I got some of Carl Jung, 
and two of his books, um, Man and His Stumbles and then his autobiography, Memories, Dreams, and something else. And in there, in one he said, if you want to know yourself, you have to follow your dreams. So here I was all this time thinking I was learning about myself my whole life, and I never thought of following my dreams. So immediately I understood he was correct. And when I went back to Morocco, I put a little pad beside my night table, and I started seriously taking down my dreams. I would take, I would ask a question, I would dream, I would wake up, write the dream down, write a new question, and the next morning I would get up and start typing up the dreams, and I would then do what I didn't know was active imagination on the dreams. And active imagination is a Jungian phrase where you follow the words, the, the thought, without thinking about it. Just just um, spontaneously say with a, with a, a computer, sit there and type, and see where, the, the, where you wind up. And so as I did that, I did it with phrases in my dreams and puns. So my dreams were very artistic. They, they had humor and puns and phrases. And I would follow those. Yeah, I would follow those, and I would wind up with things that really astonished me that I could put into my book because it was clever. It was wordplay. I couldn't have thought of it on my own. So among the dreams, I dreamed of going to the union Institute twice. And I was once taking a baby to its mother, and I was unconscious about the whole thing. I was what I was proceeding in the dark, being unconscious, taking this baby I didn't know I had, and the mother was waiting for it at the institute. So this told me that there was a purpose in my going there, some, something that was all set up and prepared, a mother who knew the baby that I didn't know, and and so therefore was a reason to go. And there was another dream I forget. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah, it was an incredible one. I I was um, on the top of a something a high up place in Barcelona at um, one of the one of the cathedrals, and I was sweeping up uh, spilt milk, and I thought the spilt milk stood for Milton Klonsky Mill K because it was a pun, and it it meant that that the relationship I'd had with him, what I had learned with him, even the book I had written using his phrases, had come to an impasse. It was spilt milk, and I had and the dream said I had to come down onto the ground. I was and I was way up in my intuition, and it was spilt milk, and I had to come down to the ground, and that would mean down to my concrete um parts of me that were like um, extroverted and uh, sensation-feeling oriented that were not um, masterful. I had to come down to that that less developed part of me. And a, a magical woman who, who would be the self, um, the magical woman handed me this horrible-looking thing, and she said, it had not been damaged, even though it looked awful, by, by sitting on a wall. She said to put, hold it under a fountain and it would clean up into a delicacy. And Zurich is, for one thing, you sit in your fountains. So I held it under a fountain and everything started, black darkness started coming out of it and jerked and it cleaned up and it was like a little fish. And that's many things. It's a Christ symbol. It's a lot of marvelous things, but that would be one Christ symbol would be one important one. Mm-hmm. And so, 
Calling me to do it was saying, come and be transformed. Um, and that the part of yourself that you've not been using or developing become a delicacy. The ability to communicate on the ground level, you know, to, to externalize. Um, that kind of communication that you've not developed because you're sitting there introverted, intuitive thinking. Um, that's not all there is to you, the dream is telling you. So I went to Zurich, and that's where I had this big initiation and perceived that Milton Klonsky was, was guiding me from death and all this stuff I never knew was possible. So the dream, dreams had told me that that would be waiting for me there. Wow. Yeah, and, and when you mentioned the baby, the, the first thing in the, the mother, the first thing that popped into my mind was the idea of, of uh, you know, a new life, you know, something, and an unknown new life. You know, that kind of needed nurturing, you know, and, and, and the mothering aspect um, that you would be able to get there. So anyway, that's just, but, yeah, but it just seemed like. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem like that that then kind of puts you on a, a different trajectory. Um, so can you, what, from that, you know, in the um, introduction that I mentioned, that, you know, there were, um, <clears throat> excuse me, you had, you know, you had the, the guidance, you know, and, and um, from from guides and, and out-of-body experiences, astral, project, astral travels. So, what, you know, what were, you know, what were some of the, you know, obviously those dreams, you know, were very um, informative for you. Um, what, what, you know, like the astral aspect? I mean, I, I, I love astral travel. <laughs> I, I, from a child, I, I mean, I would love my flying dreams. I mean, I just loved waking up after one of those dreams. Um, so what, what was, what have been, what were your experiences? Well, see, first of all, I had to, it's very hard to do any of that in total isolation where there's no one supporting you. So I was now mm. in an environment where Jung himself had had what he called a confrontation with the unconscious or the self. Um, and the teachers there and even the, the people studying there were very familiar with it. They had had, some of the teachers had their own confrontations. Like one teacher had gone blind for a couple of weeks. They, they weren't, um, they, they didn't, they weren't offended or baffled if you plunged into a Jungian type <clears throat> confrontation with the self. So I had that. Then I met this marvelous woman named Jyoti. She was called Janine Prabhat. Jyoti became her Indian spiritual name. And she, 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 since then she's gone to become a really a great teacher, leader with um, Hindu and Native American and Christian traditions and is one of the grandmothers and all that stuff. Well, I met her there, and she had had lots of visions. She knew what they were. She was in the full-blown kundalini um, experience. So she explained to me mm -hmm. and told me all about kundalini, which I was going to have, but I didn't even know what it was. And so I was sort of surrounded by this intubating uh, environment, People would say there that if you came to the Union Institute, you were suddenly surrounded by what they call feeling and, and, and sensation-oriented people as opposed, and intuitive, as opposed to like the thinking environment you might get to 
in, in the United States. So they, it was perfectly normal to say, gee, I have to go out and buy some pillowcases, but I don't know what for. Because your intuition was telling you, you're going to need that. Um, some people say mm-hmm. it's the angels telling them. But there they would say it's your intuition, which knows what's coming, but can't give you the details yet, but just tells you what to do and prepare. And that's also called being led by the unconscious. So I, anyway, I perfectly felt just basking in acceptance at the, there. And Josie became a lifelong friend. So I, I perceived that I was, I started doing meditation. I, I had never meditated. And I, I tried the simple way, like set a little timer for 20 minutes. You know, the, the very sort of like, uh, metronome kind of way, which wasn't really my way, mm-hmm. but I was trying. <laughs> and I got right. to the point yeah. that I, I, yeah, I was learning. I, I meditated, and I, basically it was more dreams for me. So I woke from a dream um, in September, um, and in the, it was in the 1980s. I woke from a dream, 1985. I woke from a dream, and I had this sense um, from the dream that I'm to stay right there in bed and keep meditating, and something's going to happen. I'm, I've got to not move, and i got to trust. And so I didn't know why I had to do this. But I kept staying in that bed, and I, I suddenly I would see little visions that would tell me, you're getting closer, you're getting closer. And I had the sense my parents were there, both uh, not in spirit form, were, were there also telling me, we're behind you, we're going to help give you energy, because I needed energy to, to get to where I had to go. And finally, after I forget how long, I broke through. And I was in the sense of uh, a different consciousness, like I had burst through into someone else's consciousness. And I saw a vision. And in the vision, I saw a man. And it was just like this blessed, sacred sight. There was a man, and I was looking at him. And he was standing before an, uh, uh, an empty auditorium, outdoor stadium, like a baseball stadium, outdoor. And he was looking up at it. And he was communicating with the audiences of the future. And he was setting up how his message was going to get to them in the future. And at the moment, the stadium is empty. It was so incredible, the sacredness of of his um, intensity, because I loved intensity, his intensity and and his knowledge that this was going to work. And so um, that, 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 was like my breakthrough and to know that after that I was <clears throat> I sensed myself presence of um, initiating spirits and I would wake every morning with a sound like a or some kind or 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 a a rolling uh, piano bars or some kind of music mm-hmm. sound to say time to wake up. And so that would tell, that, that, you know, I would feel sure. You have to be in such a situation to get the feeling of it, the energy. I, I would feel there was a presence. And then that presence would come into my head and, <laughs> and um, show me visions and this and, and this and that. And so I had um, about two years of initiation like this. I never was the same again because suddenly our, our, I was learning things like about 
about the way life functions that were far beyond what I, electricity and all that, far beyond what I could, I was the lower one. I was not equal in consciousness. I was being taught. But um, so it, it, it gave me seeds, and I, I was a thoroughly um, willing participant to the point that all the seeds were planted, and then my life unfolded to make the seeds grow. This happened to Carl Jung. He had this, this incredible initiation where, he, you know, he had no control over it, but it planted the seeds of all his entire life work. And then after that, he came back, and he was able to um, fully master being a human being in life and let the seeds unfold, and they did. And he, he, he wrote volumes of thick, understandable um, descriptions of psychology that began in those seeds. So that that would be the beginning. From there, things unfolded like I would have initiations. Wow. Wow, yeah, that, that, um, unfolding of, you know, of consciousness to me and your life before, before that, to me that is, um, that is kind of what's needed now, you know, for, for people to know. Because I think right now a lot of people, um, are moving from that, you know, that earlier life of yours of, you know, um, being um, very much in, in in the physical, in the um, experiencing life, you know, and, and learning to the energetic, you know, presence. You know, um, I, I think that kind of, that that's something that's happening now. And, and if people can hear that, you know, you had you had this one kind of life, and then you had a change, you know, you, you know, you're taking your journey, and then all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but I mean, <laughs> you know, then you have this, you know, you have this shift that happens, and then it takes you, you know, down a, a different path, you know, and um, it's kind of like a fork in a road in a way, you know, that you, you and know, it's safe. You know, it's safe. I'm sorry. You know, it is, it is, it is safe to take that fork in the road. It's really safe because life will protect you. I, I think you can think of it like an archetype. You could call it, in one of those places where I was living, the street was called Rue du Damas. Rue du Damas means road to Damascus. So it's like mm. the road to Damascus archetype, where you're going along and you're doing your best. You think that you're following what you should, and suddenly you have this blinding discovery, or it can come slowly, it can come however it comes. And you realize, oh, there's another road that I belong on much more. And you don't have to disavow your prior life. I, I wouldn't do that. My prior life was just fine. But the other one demands a chance. It, it demands that suddenly um, you do things differently. There was a time more recently when I got a certain um, health issue. And because of it, I had to suddenly shift. And I thought, I'll never be able to do that before this happened. The moment it happened, I thought, okay, what am I supposed to do? Uh, stop this, stop this, stop this, or shift to this, shift to this, shift to this. Next, next, next. I found it was simple. I couldn't believe it. I thought, who is that person 
who's shifting like that. <laughs> so if you, mm-hmm. it's true. Who is that person? I don't know her, but um, you can you you're you're capable of things you don't know if the circumstances compel you to to to, to, be, to become that next part of you. It's it's a living part of you, and it's quite able to do things you don't guess that you can do. So it's safe. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's good to know because so many times um, you one does not know where that world is leading. You know, I mean, it's quite often we really try to uh, take our journey, kind of knowing what we see ahead. You know, trying to kind of, kind of keep our you know our sights on maybe the the near future, and you know, it looks like it, but but. And, and if there is a an option that has a very unknown destination, you know, that can be sometimes for some, you know, a, a fearful, you know, kind of, of experience um, rather than trusting. And like you say, one would be safe in taking that route. Um, so it's, you know, it's one of those things where I think, you know, once you have, you know, kind of taken a, a, a chance on, on a, a road that you didn't know where it went, and you come out, you know, even better than you expected, you know, or, or coming up with things that you'd never anticipated um, in a positive way, then it, it makes it, like you said, you know, easier when that kind of fork comes up again. And it's like, okay, now I've got experience with this. And like you say, well, who is that one? You know? Um, <laughs> and, and, yeah. Um, it, look, because I, well, it was like, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say because it was, it was like no question, no confusion. It was like it was all set up and flowing. Like some part of me knew how to handle that. It was almost like some higher part of me came in and said, okay, I'll take over now. You know, it's so, mm-hmm. so that's why, yeah, it's true. That's why I, I say it's safe yeah. if you just let it happen. And you're called being led by the unconscious, meaning the collective and personal, but the collective unconscious too. He said he could have named the unconscious something else, like he could have named it God. You know, he mm-hmm. chose that word. But it, it could be right. said being led by God. It could be the same thing, where where you... Yeah. If you're going beyond three dimensions into energy, where your energy is everywhere, what on earth does that mean? Who can even fathom it? The connections right, of your yeah. energy are everywhere. And who can fathom that? Who can even define yourself at that point? Yeah, it, it becomes, uh, existence becomes a whole different matter, <laughs> so to speak. You know, uh, <laughs> So, but anyway, we're down to three minutes, and I, I do want to um, comment um, when I was uh, kind of going through your website, exploring to see who this Margaret woman was, I noticed that you are also a photographer, one of my things, but you have clouds, you, you did um, an exhibit and, and a book about clouds, um, that was, um, just, just tell us about that, what, what was it that? Well, I, I love I love it. Uh, cloud conversations and image stories. Dash uh, Leonardo's vision. Leonardo's vision was Leonardo's theory was about how interesting things 
create a response in our minds where we imprint them with images. Rather than finding them, we imprint them with our minds if they're interesting. He was way ahead. Um, that may or may not be the correct answer. But cloud images uh, and cloud conversations and image stories, um, the, I recommend just simple, simply the ebook because all the colors are vivid and they're in RGB. I love the hardcover, but the colors are in CMYK, which restricts them to four. Can you imagine reducing cloud, dazzling sunlight, photons <laughs> to four colors? It, you know, it doesn't no. work. So you, no. so you get the shapes and some of the colors, but, and, and it's worth having the hardcover, but the simple ebook gives you the glowing, dazzling, uh, ultraviolet and, and, and infrared and all the colors mixing together in dazzling sunlight. So they make images, and I did that by experimenting with the sun. I put the sun into the picture because without the sun there, there were no images of the kind I wanted. The beautiful photos. And, and um, I, when I'm out and about, I always try to remind myself to look up, <laughs> you know, and so many so many times in today's world, people are, are looking down at their phones and, and everything else. But uh, it, was, it, was, it was a reminder just that to, to look up and that there is, you know, a, a whole lot going on above us. That sure is. Absolutely. Well, Margaret, this has really been a treat. I really want to thank you for your time. I've enjoyed speaking with you. Um, and enjoyed your book. Um, I'm looking forward to reading the other three um, books as, as well. And um, I want to thank you for that. Now, you are on social media as well? Um, I'm on Facebook, and Facebook is the one I use the most. LinkedIn. Okay. I would just like to say the, the, the strange denouement to all of this, doing keep this quiet for volume series, is that I managed, I kept a dream that I wanted all of Hunter's letters to me from working together on Health Angels. And after, I wanted every single little scrap scanned in color, in full size, and put into a book, which, of course, would be exorbitant expense. Never mind, though, I held on to the dream, and I wouldn't do it a traditionally published way by extracting and retyping. And lo and behold, in 2020, uh, Norfolk Press, the publisher there, was also a printer. And he came in, and he said, I will do this book. And he made this gorgeous book, eight and a half by, no, nine by 12, 297 pages, mm. full color, um, called Hell's Angels Letters, Hunter S. Thompson, Margaret Harrell, and the making of an American classic, meaning Hell's Angels. This is, it can only be bought on the Norfolk Press website because he doesn't like Amazon. So everything about it <laughs> is kind of like, Salon, like <laughs> never mind. Um, it is an art book, and it's the most gorgeous thing. I do recommend go to Norfolk Press of San Francisco and look at it at least. And I also, I myself put it as an e-book on Amazon, the, the Hells Angels Letters. Well, great. Well, well, thank you for that and referring people um to Norfolk Publishing for that, um, a, you know, it sounds like a, a work of art, <laughs> you know, kind of giving um, Hunter the um, the attention and the quality 
that, that he deserved. Yeah, it's, it's, he's one of the authors. He wrote a quarter of the book. Oh, great. Good. Well, thank you for your time. I, I look forward to keeping in touch. I'll, I'll um, you know, connect with you on Facebook and LinkedIn and wherever you are and, and look forward to future conversations. Thank you so much, and I highly recommend your shows. Uh, the audience should go back and look at many of them. They're really well worth it. I did. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. I, I really much appreciate that. You have a good day. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Again, again, everyone, today my special guest has been Margaret Harrell. We've been talking about her book, Keep This Quiet Too, More Adventures with Hunter S. Thompson, Milton Klonsky, and Jan Mensert. Um, again, you can find out more about these books as well as uh, Margaret's energy work, about her cloud book, everything by visiting her website, which is margaretherald.com. And that's Margaret, H-A-R-R-E-L-L dot com. So everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth Show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth Show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.